Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm your host, Kirsten Yale, Associate Director for Research at the Association for Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today, I'm joined by Lisa Latourneau-Freiberg, a Research Manager at the University of Chicago Kovler Diabetes Center. Lisa is here to discuss monogenic diabetes, a rare and atypical form of diabetes that may be hindering the treatment and health outcomes of the people with diabetes in your practice. We discussed what monogenic diabetes is, signs of monogenic diabetes healthcare professionals can look out for, and the next steps you can take to help the individual better understand their diagnosis. It's a practical conversation that highlights how our understanding of the pathology of diabetes is constantly changing and how you, as the diabetes care and education specialist, can better serve all people with diabetes thrive with their disease. Lisa, welcome to the huddle. Thank you so much, Kirsten, for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. So you're a neighbor or you used to be a neighbor here in Chicago. I know <laughs> you've moved out, but you still come to town every once in a while. Uh, and you are also my local go-to expert on monogenic diabetes, which it's rare, right? So it's a little confusing. We don't know a lot about it. So which is why I've always come to you with questions. But, you know, before we jump into this conversation, I would love for you maybe just to introduce yourself and your background and let our um, listeners know a little bit about you. Sure, absolutely. So these days, my role is as research manager at the Kobler Diabetes Center. So I primarily oversee our genetics of diabetes program including all of our research studies and students and staff that we're so fortunate to work with. I'm also a dietitian, so I've spent some time um, in clinics seeing patients, and now my work is really focused on research. But our research program focuses primarily on monogenic diabetes, um, as well as some other kind of more atypical forms of diabetes. And we run the University of Chicago Monogenic Diabetes Registry, which is the largest registry in the U.S. of um, people that have monogenic diabetes. So it's really such a pleasure to work on this really interesting corner of the diabetes world. Well, I'm super excited to jump in and talk about that registry in a little bit because it is so important um, and, and to reach patients with diabetes with this information. But what I would love for you maybe to start with is just because you're an expert here, you know, what is monogenic diabetes? Sure. So it's kind of a complicated word. Um, so I think it's helpful to kind of think about it in part. So monogenic, mono just meaning one, um, and then genic meaning kind of interrelated to, to genetics or to genes. So monogenic diabetes is where you have a single genetic change that by itself is sufficient enough to cause high blood sugars. Um, and so this is kind of different than the more common forms of diabetes, type one and type two. Those are both polygenic conditions, just meaning that you might have you know, several genetic changes that together increase someone's risk for developing something like type 1 or type 2 diabetes. 
Whereas with monogenic diabetes, it's just that single change that's sufficient enough to cause high blood sugars. Um, and really, when we say monogenic diabetes, it's kind of an umbrella term. So within monogenic diabetes, we think about kind of three main types. So there's MODI, that stands for maturity onset diabetes of the young. There's um, a type called neonatal diabetes, which is really people diagnosed with diabetes under age six to 12 months or so. And then um, something called syndromic diabetes, which is just where people have diabetes in addition to other medical conditions that are caused by the same genetic change. So it's a, like you said, a relatively rare condition that affects maybe somewhere between two to 5% of people with diabetes diagnosed under age 30 to 35. But uh, it's still a large number of people in the U.S. that either have this condition or might have this condition and don't know about it. It's frequently misdiagnosed as other types of diabetes. So that makes me think if it's misdiagnosed so frequently, if I'm in the clinic working with patients, how do I recognize this? Yeah, that's the, I think, the most important question um, for diabetes care and education specialists to think about. So there's a couple of clinical features that can really help us. The first one, I think, just kind of right off the bat is if as a diabetes care and education specialist, you're working with a patient and you feel like they just don't really fit into kind of classic type 1 diabetes or classic type 2 diabetes, that's a good kind of initial red flag. But more specifically beyond that, we're looking for people that have um, an interesting diagnosis age. So for monogenic diabetes, we think mostly about people that are diagnosed under age 35 or so. Particularly if people are diagnosed under one year of age, they might have that form of diabetes. I mentioned neonatal diabetes. And so anyone diagnosed under age one really should be tested for this condition. Um, but more broadly, anyone diagnosed under age 35 or so might be of interest. The other features that we look for are a really strong linear family history of diabetes of people also diagnosed under age 35. So, you know, for example, if, if I was diagnosed at age 20, my mom was diagnosed at age 20, my maternal grandma was diagnosed um, at age 20, that would be an interesting linear family history. And then um, some other features that we look for are, again, things that help us think that, that it might not be type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So um, if you have a patient who has a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, but they're antibody negative, so meaning those diabetes autoantibodies that are often checked around the time of diagnosis to indicate the presence of an autoimmune condition. Um, if those are negatives, that might be of interest. If they're using less insulin than you would expect, um, if they are able to not take insulin and not have ketosis or, or DKA, um, that might be interesting. And then for people that have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, um, we should think about whether there's any evidence to suggest they might not have that condition. So for example, if they don't have typical features of metabolic syndrome, like they don't have hypertension, they don't have dyslipidemia, um, maybe they don't have any signs of insulin resistance like acanthosis, um, all of those might be reasons to kind of rethink their diagnosis and make sure that we have the correct underlying reason for why they have diabetes. So those are some of the clinical features that we look for. Diagnosis age, family history, lack of antibodies, and then kind of lack of features of type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So then if you see these indicators, how do you get somebody diagnosed or how do you begin looking into this? Yeah, so we, we always want to take that next step. So the clinical features are a great initial way to kind of get us thinking, you know, maybe this person might have monogenic diabetes, but the only way to know for sure is to help them obtain genetic testing. Um, so there are 
all sorts of different types of genetic testing that um, that could be ordered. But ultimately, we want to make sure that we're kind of helping our patients advocate for that. So if you're a diabetes care and education specialist who can order genetic testing, then you could help your patient with that process. If you can't order genetic testing on your own, I would encourage you to consider helping your patient advocate and partnering with other providers who can order testing. And um, sometimes you need to do, you know, insurance appeals um, or a letter of support to the insurance company to kind of justify why this testing is so important. But hopefully, in most situations, um, you'll be able to obtain genetic testing and get that final answer about whether this person does have monogenic diabetes or not. And then for interpreting, do you have to work with a genetic counselor for that interpretation? So, yeah, that's a great question. The interpretation can be a really tricky part of the whole process. So genetic testing reports can be full of jargon. They're just frankly not always super easy to understand. And there's a lot of complicated, important information in those reports. So if you are able to identify a patient that you think has monogenic diabetes, get the genetic testing and you receive a report back, um, I would really encourage um, any diabetes care and education specialist in that position to reach out to an expert center that kind of works on this all the time. So at the University of Chicago, we're very happy to provide that service our email address for anyone who might need it is monogenicdiabetes at uchicago.edu. And we can help kind of um, interpret that report with you. There are other great resources like genetic counselors, like you mentioned, um, but not all genetic counselors are necessarily trained in diabetes specifically or in monogenic diabetes specifically. So I really think having that connection with an expert center that works on monogenic diabetes all the time can be really important. We want to make sure that we're interpreting that genetic report correctly because, you know, we all have changes um, in our DNA that don't contribute to disease. So there could be changes that people have in genes that cause monogenic diabetes that don't actually impact their blood sugars. So we want to make sure that people get the right information and um, we're able to make kind of that final diagnosis of whether they do or do not have monogenic diabetes. And you did touch on this a little bit earlier, that there are some free programs available, but, you know, genetic testing sometimes can be hard to get, especially for people who aren't insured. I mean, any advice there for, for really reaching these vulnerable populations for people that, you know, the DCES could help? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think a good first step is to make sure that we're kind of assessing the potential for monogenic diabetes in every patient that we see. And so that'll help start to get at kind of this equity piece that you mentioned, Kirsten, making sure that every possible patient we see, we assess for this condition through those clinical features I talked about. Um, and then if you have a patient who is meeting those clinical features, um, helping with insurance can be difficult for sure. Genetic testing can be expensive, although thankfully it's getting a little bit less expensive with time. Mm -hmm. If you have patients who have insurance, something that can be helpful is those letter of support um, a letter of support template that you can provide to the insurance company. And um, we actually have several letter of support templates in our group at UChicago that we've created specifically to help providers through this process. So feel free to email our team and we're happy to share those letter of support templates. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a patient who is uninsured or whose insurance company will not pay for the cost of this testing, and so your patient would have a large out-of-pocket cost, our program at the University of Chicago, we do have um, a research program that provides free research-based genetic testing for people who qualify for that study. And so it's a great option for people who, again, are you know uninsured or who are otherwise unable to obtain clinical commercial genetic testing. 
And if you have patients who are interested in that program, um, again, they're welcome to email us and we're happy to chat with them more about that. That's fantastic information. And thank you, because I know that's going to help a lot of people. You know, I know you're going to touch on the cost a little bit later on, but, you know, it's just so interesting if you think about it, that if somebody does get tested and diagnosed, that the long-term cost for treatment, I believe, is so much cheaper. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to dive in there pretty soon. But this has all been valuable information so far, but it does seem like the perfect time to just take a quick pause for a 30-second break and an important message from ADCES. Are you an advanced practitioner looking for a way to demonstrate your diabetes expertise? If so, consider the board certified in advanced diabetes management certification. The application deadlines are May 1st and November 1st each year. Learn more at diabeteseducator.org forward slash BCADM. And we're back. It's really interesting. We've talked a lot about uh, precision medicine. And, you know, our conversation so far about genetics has reminded me of precision medicine. Um, And we just had a previous episode on the huddle where we talked about precision medicine. So I'm really curious to hear how precision medicine intersects with monogenic diabetes and how this might be changing the landscape of diabetes. Absolutely. Yeah. So we like to kind of joke that monogenic diabetes is kind of like the poster child for precision medicine. Because if you think about it, really precision medicine is, I mean, precision medicine and diabetes is making sure that we have the correct diagnosis for the patient in front of us, that they're receiving the correct treatment, that they receive the correct follow-up care and any additional tests they may need. Um, And in monogenic diabetes, we're able to be really pretty sure about people's diagnosis, making sure that it's correct by doing this genetic testing to see if they carry these types of diabetes. So it's really fascinating. The most important part of identifying people with monogenic diabetes, you might ask like, why does this even matter? It's so rare. Why does it matter? It's because depending on the type of monogenic diabetes that they have, they might have a different treatment course. And so like you mentioned, person for some people, if they have certain types of monogenic diabetes, they might not need any medications at all. And so you could have a person who, you know, goes from taking lots of oral medications or even insulin to not needing any of those um, therapies that would save an insurance company a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So there can really be a strong justification for getting the genetic testing done in those certain cases where, you know, they meet the clinical features that we're looking for. Um, and so that's where like those letter of support templates that we have they touch on some of those key points. So like cost savings and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's super important to take that step, help people get testing so that we can look at the results, figure out what kind of diabetes they have, and then with their treating provider, help them to make sure they're on the right treatment, the most precise treatment tailored specifically for them. You know, just thinking about this and listening to you talk through it, I am wondering if maybe not now, but maybe in the next 10 years, do you see the ability of, you know, really looking at data collected in the electronic health record that would precisely um, or pretty precisely, you know, flag people that should get genetic testing? And maybe that would alleviate some of the issues we have with therapeutic inertia. You know, we've talked about that previously, too. Mm-hmm. It's just a different way to tackle this problem, right? Yeah. So um, looking in the electronic health record is something that some groups have done, Mm -hmm. and it has varying levels of success, I would say. So it it can be a good starting point 
with the electronic health record, we're kind of limited to whatever information is in there. Um, and we know that, you know, as diabetes care and education specialists and healthcare providers, it's uh, charting is a lot. There's a lot of time that goes into that. Um, and so we're really limited by what information is actually in that chart. I mentioned before that one of the key things we look for is a diabetes diagnosis age, but does that exist for everyone in their electronic health record? Is that in an easy spot to find with something like a computer algorithm? Or is it, you know, buried in the middle of a free text paragraph that's one page long? It's going to be hard to for a computer to be able to find that. So other things like diabetes autoantibody status, that's one of the most important things that we look at. And not everyone with diabetes in the U.S. is tested for antibodies. So if that information is missing, it can be really hard to actually use the electronic health record in the way that we might imagine to be able to identify people that um, might have the highest chance of having monogenic diabetes. Mm-hmm. Having said that, certainly there are some groups that have been successful in this. Um, we've done a little bit of this work in our own studies at the University of Chicago, and it can kind of help narrow the pool a little bit. So you might go from you know, having, I don't know, 10,000 people with diabetes. And then um, by using some of these filters, only looking at people that have negative antibodies, only looking at people that were diagnosed under age 35, you can start to narrow it down a little bit more. And a combination of using a computer-based algorithm and going back and kind of reading the chart by hand, sometimes together, that can be really effective and a nice way to narrow in on folks who might actually need to have genetic testing. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I think earlier you said that, you know, monogenetic diabetes is the poster child for precision medicine. And you can even see, yes, I totally agree. Everything you talk through makes sense, but yet we're still not there. And I think, you know, I don't want to go down this road too much, but it just reminds us, you know, yes, precision medicine is amazing, but, you know, we're so far off until we have access to, you know, accurate data. Uh, we're really so far off, but a girl can dream, mm-hmm. right? And, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and we're, we're close. Mm-hmm. So this makes me think about, we've talked a lot about identifying people with monogenic diabetes. What happens when someone with atypical diabetes remains on the typical diabetes treatment plan? Yeah. So it can have really devastating outcomes. So there's a story that I often like to tell. We had a participant who joined our registry, um, a young man who had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, just sort of incidentally, he was otherwise very healthy, um, diagnosed at a routine physical and was placed on an insulin pump. Um, But he always felt that his diabetes wasn't kind of quite typical of type 1. He had negative antibodies, which is important. Um, He was not using very much insulin, so using less than we would expect for kind of a typical type 1 diabetes situation. Um, And he also had a really striking family history. So I believe his dad and several of his paternal family relatives had kind of the same type of diabetes as he did. And that was, you know, relatively mild blood sugars. So his fasting blood sugars were always kind of between 100 to 140 milligrams per deciliter. His A1C was incredibly stable. It never went above 7.5%. So he joined our studies. We were able to provide him with um, genetic testing. And turns out that he has a pathogenic change in a gene called GCK. Um, GCK MODI is the most common form of MODI that we see in our registry in Chicago. And um, without getting too much into kind of the science and biology of it, basically, if people have GCK MODI, their fasting blood sugars are just kind of slightly higher than normal. And that's something that's lifelong present throughout their entire life, but you know, might not be picked up until later on. In the case of this person, it was picked up at just a routine physical. 
So the really amazing thing about GCK Modi is that these slightly high blood sugars are really kind of normal for the people that have these genetic changes. And um, what I mean by that is that even if you give them medication, their blood sugars don't really change and they don't have the same risk for developing like diabetes complications that we would typically see, you know, in something like type 1 or type 2 diabetes. So if the medication doesn't change their numbers, their blood sugar numbers, and it doesn't increase their risk for developing diabetes complications, there's not really a reason to give it. Um, and so the gold standard for people with GCK Modi is to not be on any treatment at all. In the majority of cases, there are a few exceptions to that. So this particular person, he, as I mentioned, had been on an insulin pump for several years. And uh, one thing that always stuck out to me is that he had mentioned that he really wanted to do a um, like an Ironman, a long distance swimming event. Uh, he was an endurance athlete, but he'd never been able to do that because he was too uncomfortable to unplug his pump for that long, um, kind of worried about what would happen to his blood sugars. So after his diagnosis of GCK Modi, his treating healthcare professional was able to take him off of insulin. And um, it was just an amazing person. He sent us some data of his average blood sugars before and after taking off his insulin pump, and they are essentially unchanged. Um, and so he emailed us, you know, a few months later that he was able to finally do his long distance endurance swim because he no longer had an insulin pump on and didn't, isn't taking any medication, still is doing great. And so it's just one example of truly hundreds that we've had in our registry of people whose lives can be changed from having the correct diagnosis of monogenic diabetes. That has to be so incredible to get to work with these people one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one and see that change. Um, Absolutely. Then that's a dream, I think, for many people with diabetes. But it does make me think, so you have these incredible stories, right? And those are the ones we want to share. Um, but are there moments where you shouldn't be talking about monogenic diabetes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we certainly don't want to get people's hopes up. And we have seen that happen in our work. Um, and, you know, like you said, everyone wants to come off of medication. I think that's a totally reasonable thing to desire, but it's not safe in all cases. And so one of the, again, most important parts of kind of this whole conversation, I think, is making sure that we know what the right diagnosis, the accurate diagnosis is for all of our patients. So for example, if we have a patient who has multiple diabetes autoantibodies that are positive, that's really strongly suggestive of autoimmune type 1 diabetes. And we know that for the vast majority of those patients, they're going to need lifelong insulin support. And that's a really important part of a diabetes care and education specialist job for that patient. Whereas for other patients, if they have these clinical features that make us think this doesn't really feel like type 1 or type 2 diabetes, those are the ones that we want to get genetic testing for. So I think definitely we have to be careful about who we recommend this to. Um, and that's where those clinical features can be so helpful in starting to kind of narrow the pool of who might need this testing. Well, Lisa, as usual, you have been super amazing. I love that you've been able to share this information. I mean, like I said, we've talked about it a lot, um, but I love that you've been able to share it really in a concise way, a targeted way for our audience. And I would love for you maybe just to wrap up and say, like, what would be those two or three calls to action you'd want to leave with our listeners, something that they can do with the people that they work with? Absolutely. So I think the most important thing would be I would encourage you know, anyone listening for the next week or month or year, um, any patient that you interact with, just making sure that you ask yourself, am I sure about what type of diabetes they have? What evidence do I have to support their diagnosis of type 1 or type 2 
um, or something else. And if you find yourself realizing that maybe you don't know what age they were diagnosed with diabetes or you have never had the chance to ask about family history, um, taking the time to do that because it can truly make a world of difference and can be life changing if you can identify people that have this condition. Um, the other thing I would recommend is that if you have patients who maybe you've had testing for monogenic diabetes and it was negative, or you feel like they're atypical, but they don't quite meet the features of monogenic diabetes, there are other resources for them as well. I mean, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned a relatively new study that we're doing called RADIANT, um, which stands for Rare and Atypical Diabetes Network. And this is a nationwide study that helps patients with rare and atypical diabetes, it's really kind of a discovery study. So trying to learn about these new rare and atypical forms of diabetes. So this is kind of the next step, the next opportunity for people who don't have monogenic diabetes, but also don't fit into these categories of type one or type two. And so if you have any patients who you think might be a good fit for that, you can find more information at atypicaldiabetesnetwork.org. So in summary, just really making sure that every patient interaction you have, it's a great chance to think about, do I have the correct diagnosis for them? And are they on a personalized treatment that is correct for that type of diabetes? Lisa, thank you for all that you do. And I know you mentioned the Radiant Network, so we will put that in the show notes. And again, thank you for everything that you do and all the work at University of Chicago. Um, you guys really are making changes for people with diabetes, especially in this space. So we really appreciate it. And I hope we have you on again sometime soon. I would love that, Kirsten. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Huddle. While monogenic diabetes affects a small percentage of people with diabetes, you still play a large part in making sure that the people with diabetes you see have the correct diagnosis and access to the correct treatment for their disease. As Lisa mentioned, most often, the clearest indicator is an individual whose diabetes does not fit neatly into the box of type 1 or type 2. Make sure to check out resources discussed on today's episode in the show notes at diabeteseducator.org forward slash podcast. And remember, being an ADCES member gets you access to many resources, education, and networking opportunities. Learn about the many benefits of membership by visiting diabeteseducator.org forward slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.